people's moral calculus works in a very, very different way. You know, if you have a pot-bellied pig as a pet and you live with it in your house, the idea of harming it would be seen as immoral as me harming the puppy that's at my feet now. But the pig that's at a distance in a factory farm that ends up as the bacon in your plate, in, in practical terms, is given zero moral consideration. So that's why essentially sentientists uh, end up either being vegan or something very similar to that. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast. Today, we've got a conversations episode where we're going to hear from people who are doing interesting work, pursuing their dreams, and adding value to the world. We're going to get inside their heads, see what makes them tick, and walk away with a new perspective that'll help us in our journeys. These episodes are much less structured and formal than what you normally hear on the show. They're raw, unedited, and unproduced for the most part. Thank you for tuning in, and I'd love to hear what you think about these episodes. Feel free to email me at theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com with your thoughts. Our guest today is developing and building a global movement around a new philosophy called sentientism. This philosophy is committed to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings, which could someday even include sentient AI. He's an advisor, coach, campaigner, community builder, writer, humanist, school speaker, ski instructor, and race coach. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming our guest today, Jamie Woodhouse. Jamie, thank you very much for taking time out of the schedule to be on the show today. I know it's quite late for you over there in the UK. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Alfred. Good to be here. So, Jamie, let's learn a little bit more about you. Where did you grow up and what was it like there? Yeah, so I grew up in, um, uh, in England and the east of England in a place called Norfolk, which is a beautiful part of the country. Um, very flat, somewhat unremarkable. We don't have the sort of mountains and uh, uh, spectacular scenery of Canada, but it's a classic English beauty, uh, if you like. Um, quite a quiet pace of life. Feels like you've gone back in time, you know, 20, 30 years, but yeah, a lovely part of the country. Uh, but then went to university in Birmingham, so a thriving sort of big city over the other side of England, then moved down to London and lived in different parts of London for many years now. Now live in North London with two teenage kids, uh, a wife and a small crazy puppy. So actually the part of Winnipeg that I currently live in is called, um, well, the part of Canada I currently live in is called Winnipeg. And this is actually in the prairies as well. So it's just yeah. flat lands for as far as you could see. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Uh, some probably some similarity, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some some uh, nice countryside. Actually, I, I grew up in California, but I'm, I've moved here the last like six or seven. Oh, yeah. So uh, talk to us about what kind of kid you were in high school. Wow. I think I was a pretty typical kid. I was, um, I was very active. I loved the outdoors. I was into martial arts. Intellectually, I was, I think, quite curious, but I wasn't really too curious about the stuff I was learning in school. So it took quite a while for any of the academic stuff to kick in. One of my early school reports said, um, you know, now Jamie has reached the bottom, the only way is up, because I think I came 25th out of 26th in my class. But enough, I guess, sort of 
reluctant discipline kicked in that I did all right academically in the end, just in time. But but I was my intellectual curiosity was more you know more with things outside of the, the formal school curriculum. Really. So how different is life now than what you had imagined it was going to be like when you're that age? It's difficult to know. I mean, I, d- I didn't really have a, I don't think I had a very clear view of, you know, where my future was going to take me at that point. Some of the themes I thought about then actually echo through the things I'm doing now, but I don't really have, a, have think I would have had a clear view of to, as to where I'd end up at the age I am now. So what was your journey like then from, from those years till now? What have you been up to? Um, so I, um, as I said, grew up in uh, Norfolk, did schooling there, went to university in Birmingham, took um, sort of two and a half years out before and during and after my university experience um, for some traveling and some volunteering work and various other sort of interludes. Um, and then uh, essentially w- went into corp- the corporate world. So I uh, worked for one of the big consulting for global consulting firms from about the age of 22, 23, all the way until about three years ago. So I spent almost a quarter of a century at the same company, um, worked there uh, from sort of analyst consultant level up to becoming, you know, I guess you might call it a partner or a managing director, uh, which is a role I played for, I guess, 13 years or so. Uh, while it was one company, I, I did a lot of different things in that company. That's one of the good the fun things about consulting is uh, you can almost have, you know, a pretty diverse career of building businesses and developing teams and helping different types of clients within, you know, within one firm. Uh, but yeah, that was, you know, the upside was it always felt like multiple jobs and the downside was <laughs> one job was never enough too. So, yeah. So it, that's quite different from now what you're currently doing. So now you are the founder of Sentientism. So for, first, I guess, kind of talk to us about what the philosophy is and kind of how did your experiences kind of help shape the, the philosophy itself? Yeah. I mean, there, there are some links um, in that um, I still do some consulting work now. I'm a sort of freelance ad hoc basis. But whereas before, that was something that was all consuming and I squeezed other things I was interested in around the edges. Uh, now I've brought all the things I'm really deeply interested in right to the center and I sort of do a bit of consulting around the edges. So there's still a link. But I guess it does go back to my childhood days and some of those intellectual interests I had that didn't really fit into the school curriculum. So part of the trajectory, as you've said, sentientism, it's a very, very simple philosophy that's just trying to answer two of the most important questions in philosophy. What should we believe? What's real? And what matters morally? What, what should we care about? So two timeless questions. And it tries to do that in a really simple way. It says, when we're choosing what to believe, we should use evidence and reason. So we shouldn't use revealed beliefs or supernatural beliefs or religious beliefs. We should you know, uncertainly and with open-mindedness use evidence and reason. And when it comes to thinking about what we should care about morally, and how we should draw our moral circle, if you like. It uses the um, term sentience, which essentially means any being that is able to experience things, whether that be uh, negative experiences, which we might call suffering, or positive experiences that we might call flourishing. Um, and those two themes, for me originally, were, were a little bit separate. I think for many people they are. So I grew up in a, um, it wasn't a, a very religious household, but you know, we, I guess you would say we were Christian. We, it was a fairly anodyne, you know, non-intrusive sort of religion as much English religion is in the Church of England, which is a sort of offshoot of Christianity. 
so it didn't really define much about our, our daily lives. You know, we'd go to church, you know, for uh, Easter and Christmas and a couple of other times a year. It was a background thing, really. Um, uh, but I started reading and thinking about those sorts of topics, I think, in my sort of early middle teenage years. And I read about the history of different religions. and I read about the content of the different religions. And I guess gradually came to the view that the evidence supporting any of the many religions I read about was pretty weak and didn't really seem that convincing that the stories I read about the history of religion made it pretty clear they had a human genesis, not a, you know, a supernatural genesis. You could almost see the social forces and the historical forces and even the personalities that seemed much more likely to have created these stories than uh, anything supernatural. But I also started to look at some of the ethical implications of these types of beliefs. And, and to be frank, many of them seemed very rooted in a sort of, you know, in the time that they were uh, developed and didn't seem appropriate for the modern world. I could see a lot of warped, strange ethics there. And some of that stemmed from the fact that each of these different worldviews, there's always something that's more important than ordinary people. And, and whether it's the God or the church or the institutions or the priests or, you know, or something else, you know, there's always something that's more important than suffering and death, flourishing and life. And that doesn't have to warp your ethics, but often it seemed to. So, so I guess I became an atheist. Um, I, I'm sort of remembering approximately here, but maybe when I was around 13, 14. But atheism doesn't really tell you anything about morality at all. It's just, an, you know, a lacking a belief in a deity. Um, it's, you know, it's that simple. It doesn't say anything else. And that led me to humanism. So humanism basically says, yeah, evidence and reason, you know, facts, non-religious, non-supernatural, but it does add a moral layer. It says, look, we use evidence and reason, but we should also have compassion, not just for friends and family and people we agree with, but have a universal compassion for all humans. And it's that sort of humanistic thought that you could see running into uh, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but it has roots that go way back into you know, Arabian, Chinese, African, Indian philosophy you know, that go really, really deep, ancient Greek philosophy even. So that was the atheism plus a moral layer of universal compassion for all humans. Somewhat separately from that, I was starting to think through questions of animal ethics. And um, as a result of partly my, my sister sort of being an ethical prod for me because she was vegetarian for a long while. I went vegetarian in my early 20s and eventually about three years ago went, went vegan. Um, and both of those things were sort of halting, slow breaking of really deep social norms about you know, the use of animal products. And it was quite hard to break those norms and cut through to, I guess, a sort of blank slate view of ethics, which is what I was doing was deliberately causing needless harm and death. So I decided to try and cause less of that. But those were two different themes of thought in my mind until quite recently, um, I guess, yeah, two, three years ago, where I started to think about the animal ethics side and see that as a gap for humanism, because humanism has a moral circle that is very generous in a way, includes all humans. But if you really follow the evidence and the reason and the science, it's very, very clear that humans aren't the only beings that are capable of suffering. And if your morality is primarily concerned with reducing suffering and you know, well-being, you know, why not have a moral circle that includes all beings capable of suffering? So that led me to you know, deepen my study around some different aspects of animal ethics, uh, 
the word sentientism isn't something I created. It was originally developed in the 1970s by a psychologist um, called Richard Ryder and a philosopher called Peter Singer and a few others. And what I've really done in the last two years is to take that term and to recast it in a couple of ways. One, to make it more broadly naturalistic. So it, you, know, you could see it as, a, if you like, an upgrade of humanism that has a stance on religion and ethics and all supernatural things. It's not just talking about our moral circle, but it's also deliberately philosophically neutral on lots of other topics. So it, you know, it comes back to the definition you introduced it with. It's, it's a commitment to evidence and reason in all domains of knowledge, and it's a commitment to including all sentient beings in our moral circle but it doesn't prescribe you know, how to then work through all the different complex trade-offs that you still have to wrestle with after that. So, so that's how all the different threads come together into sentientism, I guess. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. So, so then we can say that sentience is just the ability of something to tell whether or not it is suffering. Would that be kind of the, the line in the sand if we had to like binary classify types yeah, of that's a, that, that, that's a pretty good summary because actually the reduction of suffering is you know a high priority for most sentientists because many people will see reducing suffering as more important than improving well-being or flourishing if that makes sense it's almost more important to reduce the negative than it is to um, improve the positive but technically sentience is broader than that it's really the ability to have any subjective experience whatsoever whether it's positive or negative so it sees reduction of suffering as important, probably centrally important. Um, it also sees death in itself of, as, a, as a negative because the cessation of sentient experience is bringing you know, an end to sentient experience. But it does also see real value in the positive side as well. So you know, whether that's physical pleasures, whether that's a sense of well-being or worth or love or... Um, you know, an appreciation of art or aesthetics, all of those things also have direct moral value in this way of thinking. So for someone who is kind of a, a, a stand-up ideal practitioner of sentientism, how would you say they would behave in their daily life? Like, is there, like you mentioned, a code of, of morals and, and ethics. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's it's deliberately very open. So there isn't a rule book, there isn't a text. There's you know there's no one hundred percent strictures one way or the other. Partly because because it is based around compassion. Part of that sees freedom for the individual as fundamentally important. So sentientists disagree with each other on you know many 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 things, right? As you would expect. So you know there's no rule book, there's no list of stuff, right? It literally is. What, I've, what you laid out before, evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings, that's it. Having said that, if people are serious about that commitment, it can lead you to you know, work in certain ways. And, and the sorts of things that that means for me that I think are in common with many other people who might call themselves sentientists is the evidence and reason side is really important because it isn't some sort of cold spreadsheet-based analytical, emotionless view of reality that pretends we have perfect answers through some scientific process. It's almost the opposite. It says that um, our evidence is never going to be perfect. Our reasoning is highly unlikely to be perfect. It's all we have, but it's highly unlikely to be perfect. So we should be deeply skeptical about all of our beliefs, certainly outside of formal systems, you know, we can be pretty confident that under standard maths, two plus two equals four. So, you know, I might give that a hundred percent confidence. But almost every other belief, I won't give quite 100%. I might give it 99.9, but I won't go all the way to 100% because 
I should always be open to new evidence. So that sort of sense of doubt, that sense of being comfortable not knowing things, that sense of being comfortable having a probabilistic belief that may well shift when you learn more, that sort of humility about knowledge, I think, is deeply important. And that can play into your personal behaviors. Um, no one's perfect at this. And I certainly am not. I can be preachy and strident and righteous <laughs> on all sorts of things. But, but ideally, someone who's following that evidence reasoning approach will always have that hesitation, be always open-minded about new evidence and be comfortable saying, look, I don't know because I, I haven't seen the evidence yet. So I guess that's one general flavor that will come through is a, is a sort of humility and an open-mindedness about evidence and reason. Um, but on the other side, the compassion side is just as important and that can affect you know, human relationships. So it's very easy to have compassion for friends and family and people you agree with on everything. The real challenge is the ability to have compassion with people you disagree with even have compassion with people that you think are immoral or are causing harm, you still ideally want, you know, need to uh, demonstrate and genuinely have compassion for. That doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're pliable. It doesn't mean you don't constrain those people if you need to prevent harm, but you still need to act with compassion for that person. At no point do you write them off and ignore their suffering or flourishing in your moral calculus as you're working out what to do. So that's quite a difficult thing to achieve in practice with with humans. But it's also got implications that go beyond that because again, it's it's reasonably easy for people to, at least in theory, feel compassion for members of our own species. But it is tough to go beyond that. So you know, I've got a puppy at my feet here. That's pretty easy, right? Because culturally we're attuned to recognizing that dogs are sentient, there are companions, there are family members. You know, if I was to harm her now, your listeners would condemn me almost universally, right? So so that's pretty easy companion animals people might feel also it's quite easy when you're watching a wildlife program to look at the the charismatic wildlife you know the polar bears and the lions and you know the spectacular stuff and people may feel again some compassion for those caring about them sometimes that's more aesthetic than it is a genuine concern for the animal's well-being but again that's quite easy but when you get to other wildlife uh, where you get to vermin when you get to pests and you know you can tell how these categories are shaped to help us you know, drop our compassion away. And particularly when you get to farmed animals, people's moral calculus works in a very, very different way. You know, if you have a pot-bellied pig as a pet and you live with it in your house, the idea of harming it would be seen as immoral as me harming the puppy that's at my feet now. But the pig that's at a distance in a factory farm that ends up as the bacon in your plate in, in practical terms, is given zero moral consideration. So that's why essentially sentientists uh, end up either being vegan or something very similar to that because you know veganism is cast in all sorts of different ways and some vegans don't necessarily do a great job of <laughs> putting forward their rationale. But the essence of veganism is, you know, as far as practical, trying to reduce the suffering and death we cause through all of the decisions we take, whether that's consumption or uh, living, living in the world. So those are some themes. I think there's that humility around evidence and reason, that open-mindedness. Uh, there's that genuine compassion, even for people you disagree with, which I often fail at. But there's also that compassion that's then extended to you know, other types of beings that are a little more alien to us, but that we have scientific evidence really can suffer too. And that suffering should matter morally. 
Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate that. And my next series of questions are probably going to sound really, really dumb. So I apologize in advance. Not at uh, all. It's just, it's just really fascinating to me and I find it really interesting. So for me, kind of my, my software, as it were, my philosophy of life uh, I've adopted for myself is, is just the, the philosophy of the Stoics, so Stoicism. Yeah. And very similar, just human beings have the capacity for reason. That's kind of what separates us from the other animals. And I guess sentientism, does it also encompasses that belief that that's kind of the difference between like us and animals is our ability to reason, or do we even see a difference between us and the animals? So it's interesting to lay out how sentientism can be different from some people in the animal advocacy and some people in the animal um, ethics movement, because there are many differences of opinion. So some people will say that any sentient being warrants this, exactly the same moral consideration, whether it's a, you know, a chicken or a pig or a horse or a dog or a human being of any, of any type. And they will argue that on the basis that they, they do recognize there are biological differences and probably difference in the quality of experience that's going on. But they say, who are we to judge that the experience uh, maybe a simpler animal feels is any less visceral or any less distinct than what we experience as human. Um, so while there are probably types of suffering that humans can experience that simpler animals can't, you know, maybe thinking about the long-term future or, you know, our plans for life being thwarted, right? it might be a little harder to imagine simpler animals feeling those. There are also things that make it easier for us to cope with suffering, right? As you say, you know, the stoic philosophy or the ability to meditate or put things in context where we might be able to could mean that we might be able to handle certain types of suffering in a way that, you know, a simpler animal doesn't have access to those things. So arguably their suffering could be even worse. So there are people who will, will insist on that complete equality of moral consideration, but even they will acknowledge that there's a variety of different types of sentience. Um, other sentientists will say, actually, you know, we don't know, and the science is always uncertain, but it is highly likely that, I mean, in my personal view, I think sentience is simply a complex class of information processing. Nothing more. I say nothing more. I mean, it's mind-blowingly amazing and the only thing of moral salience <laughs> uh, there is, right? So it's, it's amazing. But at, at a technical level, I do think it's a class of information processing. So in that context, there's likely to be an enormous richness of different types of sentient experiences. So there's some you know, wonderful philosophical papers written about you know, what is it like to be a bat or what is it like to be a garden snail or... And, you know, we don't know directly because in the same way as I can't experience exactly what you're experiencing, I certainly can't experience what, um, you know, other types of animals are experiencing. But at the same time, we can use science and evidence and inference of architecture and, you know, fMRI scans and watching behavior and inference from biological, shared biological history that things are sentient, we can build enough confidence but we don't know the precise nature of it. So, you know, my personal view is I think there's an enormous richness of different types of sentience, and it may make sense to offer graded moral consideration. So, you know, if you think about the uh, thought experiment of, you know, you can only, there's a burning building and you can only save a human child or a chicken from the burning building, I will save the human, right? So, uh, and I think, to be honest, most of the people who even claim perfect equality would still do that in reality. <laughs> Um, but to, to your point, you, you make an interesting, so I do think there are differences between the human species and others. And I think there are differences between many of the different species. And I think there are differences between individuals too. Um, but I wouldn't, I'd be hesitant about drawing a really sharp line. I don't certainly don't draw a very sharp ethical line because I think any being that can experience suffering that can be sentient 
warrants moral consideration. But even around our ability to reason and our ability to apply morality, I don't think starts with humans. So at least in rudimentary forms, that sort of naturalistic approach of applying evidence and reason, I think you could argue goes all the way back to the beginning of any basic life form. So even you know, a simple you know, archaeotype organism around the origins of life was still sensing its environment in some way, you know, taking in some form of evidence, maybe learning in some breathtakingly rudimentary way and reacting to the environment based on its naturalistic experience of that. And certainly as you progress through the ev- evolutionary tree, it's very clear that most animals survive and reproduce partly by experiencing, using their senses to experience reality and you know, using that to build information patterns in their minds, maybe even in their genes that enable them to engage. So in a way, that's, that is a, you know, a use of evidence and reason, even if there isn't you know, something of our cognitive nature. When you get later in the evolutionary tree, I think there absolutely is reasoning going on, right? So the puppy at my feet, I'm absolutely confident is doing reasoning. I mean, she can't do calculus, but then I'm not very good at that either. But, but there's absolutely reasoning going on there. And she's taking rich sensory information, some of which I don't have access to. And she's doing some form of reasoning and working out what to do and taking decisions. So I would, I'd, I'd be very, I definitely wouldn't draw a line and say, well, humans can reason and non-humans can't. I think non-humans absolutely can reason. Um, and I'd argue a similar story on the ethics and the morality side, because Yes, we've codified and you know, philosophized and refined, sometimes made worse, ethics and morality. But their roots come way before humans. And you know, it wasn't a written down moral code. But when you look at pack dynamics, or kin relationships or reciprocity or symbiotic relationships, even between different species, that is the rudiment of morality in my mind. And, and I don't think there's a really really clear line between morality you might see you know in the animal world and at least the rudiments of what we operate on as humans so i think it's a it's an interesting mix but personally i think we're amazing a, a wonderful incredible species that has developed the ability to you know culturally transmit knowledge in a way that only other you know other animals only seem to do in quite a basic way you know, most of their transmission is purely genetic we've found other ways of transmitting knowledge which has enabled us to do incredible good and incredible harm so i think humans are you know mind-blowing and um, pretty special uh, we're not as special as we think we are mm-hmm. and and most of the we're we're another type of animal we're, we're quite an amazing type but we are just another type of animal yeah that is really interesting because there is really like a like you mentioned a, a kind of like a well not kind of like most definitely a spectrum of of sentience right where we have like us and then monkeys and dogs and then you know spiders at the very bottom i hope because i crush spiders every day (laughs) but so again gonna hopefully sound like a dumb question but so for example like in, in in stoic philosophy we contemplate the concept of like the ideal sage and what we're trying to do for ourselves is refine and make our character excellence by practicing you know virtue and in some number of dimensions. So is there like kind of a concept of the um, ideal sage and sentientism where maybe you, if you're new to the thing, you just have compassion towards animals that are set up for slaughter, but then as you mature and develop, you want to encompass that entire spectrum in your sphere of compassion? Yeah, there's, sentientism is quite annoying in a way, because it is so neutral on so many things. And that's deliberate because I want it to 
set a very simple baseline. Uh, it's like a very pluralistic philosophy that I hope many different people can agree on the basics and then fight over everything else. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because I think those basics are, are the most important thing. Um, it's neutral on even virtue ethics or deontology or consequentialism, you know, those sort of classic schools of thought of philosophy. It says you can do whatever you like, but you have to at least include all sentient beings in your moral circle. Mm-hmm. And you can believe in a way, you know, whatever you like, but you have to have a commitment to grounding that in evidence and reason. And that's all it says. So, so there, in that sense, there is no ideal. There is no utopia. There is no, there's nothing more than that simple definition, evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. That is it. Okay. But at the same time, it does lead sentientists into some really interesting places because if you have universal compassion for all sentient beings, you do see suffering as a moral negative. Sometimes it might be necessary. Sometimes it might be justified. But yes, in a perfect idealized world, could you imagine a situation where there would be no suffering and whether that's um, through, you know, biological engineering or technological progress or, you know, ethical innovation or some other form of, you know, Deutschian development of the human species. Some people do have those types of utopian thoughts. Others are linked into the sort of transhumanist movement that are thinking very assertively about different types of technologies that could enable those types of things. Other people are more focused on the here and now and say, look, that's, that's all very interesting, but you know, we today have 8 billion humans and many, many trillions of other sentient beings that are suffering in the wild and that we force breed, torture and kill every year you know, for our pleasure, right? That's where we should focus. So th- again, there's a very broad diversity of views. But yeah, there is space for some you know, utopian thinking about where you might, uh, where you might ultimately want to get to. Uh, there's different variations and versions of craziness, but uh, <laughs> depending on which mood you're in. Uh, so, so evidence, evidence-based reason, compassion for all sentient things, and sentience is really just the capacity to uh, process information in some really fast and interesting ways, right? So, yeah, and I, and I think that's an interesting distinction because that's, I don't know if you've heard of the philosopher called, school of thought called panpsychism. No, I have not. No. Okay, so, so when you mention that sentience is, a, is, a, is information processing, um, I think it is information processing, but it's a particular class of information processing. Hmm. So just as PowerPoint is a computer program, not all computer programs are PowerPoint. It's a similar sort of setup. But there are some people who, because they find it, difficult and i appreciate this they find it difficult to understand the the nature of what consciousness and also sentience is and because they can't find it anywhere when they analyze the information processing that goes on in our brains for example they look at the neurons they look at the chemical firing they look at the electrical patterns and they and they they understand that physical processing but they can't conceptualize how that might also be or give rise to consciousness um, some people will posit that consciousness is actually independent of the information processing, the matter and the data in some way. There's a separate sort of thing of some sort that isn't matter or data or information processing that is associated with those processes. Um, and the more extreme versions of panpsychism actually posit that that is present in all types of information processing in some rudimentary way, even going back to the information processing that an electron is doing in a way as it you know orbits around the atom. Obviously, it's a quantum cloud of probability, really. Um, so, and again, there are sentientists who do think that way they they actually think that in some sort of odd sense almost everything could be conscious 
in some way. Uh, but morally, they would say that you know, if, elect- if an electron is conscious, it's conscious in, or sentient in such a basic way that we don't need to give it any meaningful moral consideration. Personally, I, I think that if we de- redefine terms like consciousness in such a way that everything is conscious, we've totally destroyed the meaning of the word. And I do, you know, I take, I sort of um, take the piss out of the panpsychist view by talking about PowerPointism. And I say, look, we all know what it's like to use PowerPoint. We have snap to grid and we have alignment and we have slideshows. But when I read through the code on my laptop, I can't find those elements, that experience of PowerPoint anywhere in the code. So maybe I should posit that PowerPoint is a fundamentally emergent magical property that's associated with everything in the universe. And that sounds ridiculous, but then I think the panpsychist idea is very similar. It's saying just because I don't really understand how this thing comes about, maybe it's fundamental. Whereas when I think if you, I think if you take a more prosaic approach to sentience and you say, I'm highly confident of my own sentience, uh, you know, in a sort of Descartesian way, that's like the primary thing we're pretty confident of because I'm experiencing it second to second now. I can extend that to be pretty confident about your sentience as well, because you look like a human. We have a very similar evolutionary path. We probably have a very similar information processing architecture. I can see how you're behaving. I could put you in an fMRI scanner when you're awake or when you're asleep or when you report consciousness and see which bits of your brain are firing. And then I can also use that knowledge as neuroscience and information technology studies do to then look at other types of species or other types of entity and form some sort of confidence that they're probably sentient as well because there seems to be similar behavior, similar evolutionary paths, similar information processing architecture, similar patterns firing up in the fMRI scanner. But if you look at an electron, right, its capacity to do any information processing is so minimal, it doesn't seem to demonstrate any space for the type of information processing that's correlated with what you and I mean as consciousness or sentience. It has no evolutionary reason for having generated that type of advanced modeling of the self in a model of the environment, which is what I think sentience and consciousness comes from. I think we've evolved consciousness and sentience because it was evolutionarily useful for us to develop a complex and advanced mental model of ourselves as an entity environment that could kill us. Uh, And an electron has never had that pressure. Um, And even if it had, an electron can't change. It is just an electron. And for photons, time doesn't even pass. So for all of those reasons, I think the idea of computing some sort of, you know, any consciousness or sentience that you or I might feel to an object that pretty much has almost zero information processing capacity, no evolutionary rationale for developing that capability, um, and no ability to instantiate the changes that we you know, associate with sentience and consciousness. It makes no sense to me. So, so that's, a long, that's a long answer, but yeah, I, yeah, hopefully it's an important clarification. Yeah, it's, definitely. You know, it's a particular class. It's like a different, a particular mm-hmm. class of programs, but not all programs are sentient. And in fact, uh, most, most of the processing that's going on in our brains, we're not conscious of either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so most of the electrical firing that's going on in my mind now is not actually related to my sentient experience, right? So even my, my own brain isn't yeah. all sentient. Yeah, thank you very much for that. I really, really enjoyed that. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists.
So now let's talk about something that is going to be very relevant to my audience. We're data scientists, machine learning practitioners, AI practitioners. So how does sentientism account for AI? So can AI suffer? Is it ever going to be sentient? Like, can we classify that as that? Yeah. So this is a fascinating space um, and I, I love exploring it. Many other sentientists find it really irritating when I do this because they rightly say, look, we need to focus on the sentient beings that exist now. And as I said, you know, trillions of non-human animals and 8 billion humans and, you know, there's awful suffering in the world, much of which we could fix quite easily if we only had the willpower. And I totally agree, right? In terms of priorities, that's where my priority is too. But I do like the fact that instead of just saying, look, let's define our moral circle based on some other set of species or, you know, type of biological animal or whatever that we've actually focused sentientism on the characteristic that matters and the characteristic is sentience it's not a particular type of biological architecture it's not a particular list of species it's just that characteristic of sentience because that's what has moral salience suffering and flourishing that's what you know it's almost tautological that's what morality i think should be about and if we we're just focused on the characteristic and nothing else, you know, race, sex, gender, caste, sexuality, species, don't care, right? If it's sentient, we should care about it. So if we focused on that characteristic, and if we're committed to a sort of scientific approach based on evidence and reason to understanding that sentience, and that understanding has led us to consider that really sentience is just a class of information processing, um, why couldn't that information processing run on a variety of different substrates. You know, if it can operate in a dog or a pig or a horse or a human, you know, at least conceptually, why couldn't it run on, you know, some form of advanced AI computing architecture or even some sort of alien biology if you want to really go sci-fi. So at least in principle, sentientism would absolutely say, look, if we encountered an alien species or we encountered or developed our own artificial intelligence, that we had enough evidence seemed to be demonstrating what we would think of as sentience. And we'd never perfectly know or highly unlikely we perfectly know, but you know, I don't know that you're sentient hundred percent either, but if we could develop that consciousness, then yes, we should grant the moral consideration. So it does acknowledge the fact that, you know, if you had a su- substantially advanced artificial intelligence or artificially intelligent robot that genuinely demonstrated it had seemed to have a subjective awareness and capacity to suffer, then yeah, a sentientist would grant that moral consideration too. Now, my personal view is that none of the, you know, there are researchers and thinkers out there who think that, uh, you know, video game non-player characters might have some basic level of sentience <laughs> already. Um, you know, and that's similar to that sort of panpsychist view earlier, where it's sort of implying there's probably some sort of consciousness in every form of information processing. And I disagree with that. I think there's a higher bar. So I don't think there any of the forms of artificial intelligence that we're running to today are sentient or conscious i think you know they demonstrate amazing complex rich behaviors but i don't think anything achieved sentience and the reasons i don't is again because to the extent you can look into the sometimes black boxes of artificial intelligences we don't see the information processing corollaries of the way our own minds work so that analog doesn't seem to be there the evolutionary history isn't there i think for an artificial intelligence to develop sentience or consciousness either we would have had to have designed it in explicitly or it would have had to emerge from some form of massively parallel evolutionary style process where the incentives drove it to develop a very advanced form of self 
so yeah, I don't. So I don't think any of the, today's technologies are approaching sentience at all. But in principle, I don't see why it couldn't eventually. You know, I think the the immediate ethical challenges around AI are less to do with the potential sentience of AI and more to do with, you know, the power for AI to do good or harm to, um, you know, the biological sentient beings, particularly humans that are that exist today. But in principle, you know, why not? It's interesting. Let, let's you know say that maybe we can get an AI system to be doing some crazy calculations to get a bit of sentience, right? And maybe they have sentience, but without morality. Kind of like how a lion is sentient, but without any morality. Yeah, doesn't give a shit about us. Uh, so, what is it about humans that you know? Why should we be the ones that? include other things in our moral circle when other things might not include us in their moral circle because they don't have one. Yeah, that's a great question. And we'll get into another space where other sentientists will disagree with me because your point about the lion and the, the human is another interesting distinction where you say, you know, the lion has evolved in a certain way. It has a certain carnivorous mindset and physiological needs. Um, you know, it can do no other but chase the antelope and kill it. A sentientist would look at that situation and say, well, the, the suffering of the antelope, you know, we can understand why the lion does what it does, but the suffering of the antelope is still real and it's still a moral negative, right? And it is a little bit old when you start thinking this way, but when I watch wildlife programs that see that type of suffering, it, it's almost like a, you know, a snuff movie for me, right? It's, it's, it's a viscerally unpleasant experience because I actually do, however weird it sounds, feel real compassion with that animal and the, the suffering they're going through is horrific. But you look back to the lion and you say, well, yeah, well, it, it could do nothing else. And this is where other sentientists will disagree with me because from my perspective, I think you could say that about humans too. And we do have this sense that, or we have this concept that humans have uniquely free will where we can choose to do one thing or another independently and that as a result of that or linked to that we see ourselves as moral agents you know an agent that can do this or could do that and if we take the wrong choice we could be held accountable and we can, we can be punished but i don't really see a category difference between you know a lion that can do you know can't do anything but kill the antelope a human psychopath that has you know some sort of mental illness or a genetic disorder or you know some other brain lesion that means they can't do anything else but kill or to be honest an ordinary human that has a normal bring upbringing a normal background and you know uh, nice parents and a privileged upbringing and and applies you know a decent set of modern morals personally and again this is contentious because others sentences will disagree with me you do on many things but because i take quite a strong materialistic view about how the universe works i genuinely think we are all just physics so from my perspective uh i don't think the concept of free will is even coherent i've never actually heard someone explain to me what it is so people will say well you know it's not deterministic what you know what humans decide to do is not deterministic it's not driven by the physics of their brains and the inputs of their perceptions i say okay well is it random because if it's random that's not free will either what they do is driven by a random process and if it's not deterministic and it's not random but it's some sort of you know unknown quantum process that has probability baked into it that's not free either right so so i don't really understand what free will even means except in a magical context where there is some independent entity that isn't my information processing it isn't my brain it's but there's a me somewhere that we can't see we can't feel we can't find you know if you, you do intense meditation you, you won't find this person there right i don't understand 
understand what free will is, even as a concept. And I don't find, I don't understand who the, where the agent is if it's not the information processing my brain and body is carrying out. Um, so in a way, that concept of a moral agent, I, I'm not sure is that useful either, because in a way we're just, you know, I could, I have in a, in a purest sense, I have no choice but to say the words I am now saying to you at this moment. I have this feeling, this impression that I could do something different. I could hang up. I could smash my fist through the screen. But that's, that is really an illusion. I, I have no choice in a genuine sense to do exactly what I'm doing and what I'm saying right now. And that feels pretty weird to say, but I genuinely think that's true. One of the reasons people are very hesitant about following that logic, which I think is inexorable and inescapable, <laughs> but one of the reasons people don't like it is because they're really worried about what it will do to justice. So they'll say, well, in the same ways, it doesn't make sense to blame a lion or to punish a lion. You know, if we don't have free will or moral agency, presumably we can't have any justice at all. We can't blame anyone. We can't punish anyone. You know, it's just a free for all, right? We're just doing what we do. Um, and I'm not sure that's, that applies at all. I think we could actually get a better justice system um, without free will agency. Because if, if when you're thinking about justice, all you want to do is reduce future suffering and make the world a better place in the future, what that might lead you to is, uh, say there is a human who's done something deeply immoral. Um, you might want to protect other people by constraining them or imprisoning. Um, so it certainly doesn't mean you let them carry on causing harm, right? You may well want to constrain in extreme situations. It may be moral to kill them, right? If you see a terrorist running to a group, running towards a group of school children, you know, <laughs> even a compassionate approach will kill them, right? So it's not a soft mindset. You want to protect others. You might also want to rehabilitate. So you might want to retrain. If it's a medical problem, you might want to address that drug. If it's a behavioral problem, you might want to help that with therapy. So you might actually want to help the person become better to mitigate the risk of causing harm in the future. You might want some restorative justice that finds a way of, you know, if it can, if putting the wrong right, right? If someone's stolen something, give it back, right? So there's some restoration. Um, so those different themes of, you know, protection, restoration, rehabilitation, even deterrence, right? Because if you do punish uh, someone that's done wrong, that action becomes an input to others that might be considering doing that reduces the probability of doing it. There's no free will here at all, right? But there are just things that you do that reduce the probability of harm. So restoration, rehabilitation, deterrence, protection. The only thing you lose from a justice system like that that's genuinely compassionate, that doesn't really care whether free will or moral agency exists, the only thing you lose is retribution. And retribution is the driver which just says, you did wrong, so I want to hurt you. No other reason, no other reason, I just want to hurt you. And that's all you lose. Um, so I actually think that if you, if you say, well, you know, argue over free will if you like, but we don't need it for a decent justice system. And it's, to be honest, I don't think it's even a coherent, coherent suggestion in the first place. So we've gone a bit off piste, really, because some other sentientists will say, totally nuts, right? And free will is absolutely essential. And But that's personally, that's where it leads me. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't want to get into free will because I can go into a whole different rabbit rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> start, start talking about some weird stuff like uh, what was it the, the matrix theory, uh, simulation theory? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's simulation, yeah. So we were talking about justice a little bit earlier. Is it not compassionate to take somebody who's done something wrong, strip away their rights and just toss them into the cell? Or is it that if we are to do that, if we are to exact some type of retribution, then let us at least be compassionate towards a person. So I guess what, what, does, what does compassionate retribution look like for somebody who's committed some crime? Like would compassion be give the same punishment to somebody who stole an ice cream bar versus somebody who stole like a, or, or killed somebody. Like hopefully my question makes sense. Sorry if it sounds crazy. No, it, it, <laughs> it does. And I think this is important because if someone's done something wrong, 
having compassion for them doesn't mean you're soft on them. It just means that you don't want to hurt them. And if you can, you want to help them become better. So if someone's done something seriously wrong, you could still apply a very harsh punishment to them. You, like I say, you might lock them up. You might even kill them in an extreme situation. But your rationale for doing that would purely be because the harm you're causing them, you think is demonstrably outweighed by the harm you're preventing. So you're still acting with compassion for that individual, but you, you know you're still causing them harm, right? Compassion doesn't mean you never cause harm under any circumstance. It just means you take that person's suffering into account when you're working out what to do. But sometimes it may well still be the right thing to punish even quite harshly under that situation. It just means your motivation would be you know, overall to try and reduce suffering, not some sort of pure retribution of just harming for the sake of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so I think that would, that would mean you'd, yeah, you would punish more, you know, more serious wrongdoing in a harsher way, right? Because if someone steals an ice cream or someone commits a murder and you're thinking, right, how do we protect other people from that individual? <laughs> you know, one of those is a bigger problem than another. One of them is easier to fix than another. One of them is more important to deter others from than another. So absolutely, you'd have a harsher uh, punishment system for a you know, more serious crime. Thanks so much for, uh, for sharing that. So what can we do to be more, how can we practice compassion a little bit more in our daily lives, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what are some things we can, we can start doing? I think this is where there is a really good synergy with the stoic mindset, because I think stoicism is a really good way of helping you balance what you can have an effect on, what you can't, accept the things that you can't control and but ha- try and have a positive influence on other things. But I think it also helps to manage this, what some call the demandingness challenge, because when you do have a universally compassionate worldview, that can be quite a strong psychological load. You know, if you genuinely take on compassion for farmed animals, given what we know is happening every minute of the day, if you have compassion for, you know, wild animals, which arguably is, you know, also a, a deep ocean of awful suffering. And when you have compassion for all 8 billion humans, many of whom are suffering and and struggling, that can be quite a strong emotional and psychological load for a human being that's really evolved to have a network of, you know, 150 people in a much tighter group that, you know, we, we care about. So that can be difficult. And I think philosophies like stoicism can help to balance that because we have to look after ourselves to be able to do good in the world. Um, And I think it is fair to have, while you might have a broad moral circle, it's still, I think, fair and reasonable to have a sort of compassion gradient within that. So, you know, I I do try and have universal compassion for all sentient beings, but I still care more about, you know, myself and my immediate family and my friends than I do people on the other side of the planet, even though technically I know they warrant the same moral consideration. In terms of my compassion gradient, you know, I still do differentiate. Um, So I think you've got to balance those things um, intelligently. But at the same time, I think there are practical things that it can change. It can change the way you have conversations, whether those are in real life or on social media. And anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I fail at this and my snarkiness can escape and my preachiness and my righteousness can escape. But I think if you remind yourself, it can actually help you to have constructive, compassionate conversations that actually help things move forward. So I think it can help your human interaction. Um, A practical thing we've touched on already is trying to reduce the harm you do through your lifestyle. And you can't be perfect here because living in a modern world, we are causing harm, right? And even a sort of super purist vegan is 
still causing harm and suffering. You know, arable farming kills sentient beings through harvesting pesticides, right? So let's not pretend that there's some sort of perfect state you can achieve where you get a green light versus a red light. Some people give that impression it's just not the case, right? But because it's hard to be perfect doesn't mean you shouldn't try and reduce the suffering you cause through your purchasing decisions through your actions through uh, the things you do and that's why veganism or something very close to it is something that most sentientists commit to um, but there's also an interesting range of in- things you can do in the wider world again depending on your ability to you know free up capacity from looking after yourself and your family and your immediate things right about how you can help make the world a better place and in general sentientists will to the extent they're able to, will try and apply evidence and reason to working out how to do that effectively. Um, so that leads some sentientists to line up with another, I guess it's a, a movement or a philosophy called effective altruism you might have heard of, uh, which in simple terms is saying that we should try and do the most good we possibly can and we should use evidence and reason and rationality to work out what is the most effective thing to do. So instead of just emotionally doing what feels good, we should actually technically think through how we can mitigate the most possible suffering for humans or for sentients as well. So I guess there's those th- you know, three three examples I'd give. One is how does that change the nature of your human interactions? Two, how can you work through your lifestyle to try and reduce the amount of suffering death you cause um and three as you think about uh, if you have capacity how can you do good in the world and make the world a better place for sentient beings there's um, a whole world of uh, possible initiatives that people can get involved in and personal actions thank you very much for talking to us about that i think i think sentientism is a very I mean, beautiful philosophy most of the philosophies i've been studying have aimed mostly at just reducing my own suffering <laughs> that, that i could be causing myself <laughs> through my own mental processes and it's a good place to start, though. It's a good place to start, yeah, definitely. So it was um, really enjoyed hearing you talking about sentientism and, and thinking of ways that I can extend that compassion, you know, instead of just keeping it inwards, try to extend it outwards, out beyond my family and into greater, I guess, moral sphere, as it were. Yeah, thank you. And, and I guess one quick thing I would say is don't underestimate how deep the training is that goes against this, right? So I think when most very young children are born. If you imagine before they've really learned from their parents or before they've learned from school or before they've learned from church, arguably they start out as little sentientists, right? So we'll explore the world, we'll use our senses, we'll develop basic knowledge about what's around us. Um, So we're sort of little scientists really. Uh, But then, you know, billions of people around the world are taught that that's not how to believe. Billions of people around the world are told, here's the book, you do not question it, here are the rules, you do not question it. And that's indoctrinated into them through parents and through schools and through churches for many, many years. Um, And that's extremely hard for many people to ever break away from. Um, and that can, you know, sometimes that, that's not a serious issue because those people still find a route to compassion and in their daily lives, they apply evidence and reason too. But it can also lead to some deeply serious problems. We see them all around the world uh, today. Um, but the same is true on the compassionate front. So again, a small child, if you introduce a toddler, a human toddler to a, to a pig um, and say, well, you know, you could kill that if you want to eat its flesh because the bacon tastes nice, they will look at you like you're totally crazy. And you are, <laughs> right? But again, f- almost from birth, that compassion is trained out of us. So we're trained to uh, think that it's completely normal to harm and kill other sentient beings for our pleasure. But we're also within the human sphere trained to look at that group over there, that group over there, that group over there as not really warranting full moral consideration. And whether that's gender roles or whether it's a caste system or it's sexuality or race or a different tribe or a different nation, that universal compassion, I do think we start 
start out with a reasonably universal compassion, or at least a starting one, gets trained out of us. So, you know, almost from birth, both on applying evidence and reason and applying universal compassion, all the forces of society are trying to rip those good things away from um, And we have to be compassionate about the people, about how hard it is to unwind that social condition and go back to evidence, reason, and compassion. It's a, it's a long and difficult journey, probably one that never ends. Yeah, I've got a almost six-month-old baby son upstairs. So I'll oh, do congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'll do my best not to uh, train the compassion out of him. And yeah, you can learn from him. You can learn yeah, from him. Definitely. <laughs> so uh, let's do our last formal question before I jump into a quick lightning round here. Okay. It is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Wow. Okay. I would like sentientism to be... I, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in how I'm remembered, but my dream would be that sentientism has not necessarily become the dominant worldview for the entire human race, but it's infused into our culture and our policies and our institutions and our way of governing to such an extent that we've seen a radical change in the quality of experience for human and non-human sentient beings. So that we would have seen a complete end to animal farming and we may well have found technological approaches to, uh, you know, whether it's clean meats, cultured meats and plant-based meats to fill, help fill those gaps, but there wouldn't be essentially no animal farm and no animal exploitation whatsoever. We would have um, governments, institutions and corporations that are have compassionate ethics built into the way they operate into their policies and into the way they measure their outcomes at all levels. Um, and that all of those types of organizations, again, corporate, NGO, governmental, intergovernmental, would have evidence and reason as their guiding light, that they would be doing experiments, that they would be gathering data, they would be admitting their failings and their mistakes, that they would be measuring the progress towards reducing suffering, um, essentially a more rational way of operating at every level of human life. And I think what you'd see infusing through that and coming from that is one a very a much richer sense of international uh, community that would break down more and more of those barriers so that we can really revel in the breathtaking diversity of the human race you know the cultures the music the arts the different races and genders and preferences and you know and really revel in that but still feel that common connectedness that spans across all of those different characters and even across all species so that there would on average be a richer level of universal compassion that would see us cooperating more deeply, um, being much more cautious about harming each other and, um, uh, and freeing the amazing intellectual and emotional capacity of you know, 8 billion humans, which by then may be 20 billion, from the sort of bottom half of the Maslow's hierarchy of uh, security and safety and war and famine and <clears throat> starvation. Free us from dealing with all that bullshit so that we can do some really cool, breathtaking, futuristic science fiction stuff that will lead to an end to all suffering and some you know, amazing future experiences. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's uh, <laughs> so not ambitious at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, no. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, let's jump into a quick lightning round here. First okay. question is, when do you think the first YouTube video to hit 1 trillion views will be? And what do you think it'll be about? Oh, Wow. Well, I've got 25 followers on YouTube, so subscribers on YouTube, so it won't, it won't be one of mine. That's a brilliant question. I, what's, the current, what's the current record? Currently, it's 7 billion with Justin Bieber and it's Despacito. Wow. I, oh, my God. I would give it eight years and I have no idea what it would be about. I think it, maybe it will be a Despacito remix. <laughs> 
Yes, for you. Written by written by GPT nine. <laughs> so year two thousand twenty eight. All right. Yeah. If you were to write a nonfiction book, what would it be about, and what would you call it? This is really boring because I guess I should write one about sentientism. So at the, at the moment we have a website and I've done some articles and I've done some podcast interviews. It's great to be here. I've done a few YouTube videos, but um, uh, maybe at some point I should write a book and I, I probably would just call it sentientism. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you believe that other people think is crazy? I think most people think sentientism is, sentientism is crazy. <laughs> no, I th a more specific example, I think, but it does link. I think most people think it's crazy to think about ending animal farming. And even most people in the animal advocacy movement think it's crazy to think about reducing wild animal suffering. What are you currently reading? Well, I'm reading a book about how to program in Python. I'm oh. reading... Reasons and Persons by Derek Parfit and what else? And I'm reading some, I've forgotten the name of it. I'm reading some great sci-fi. There's one by Greg Bear um, and there's another one by Adrian Tchaikovsky. I think I, quite often I find there's better philosophy in sci-fi than there is in philosophy papers. So. Mm. Uh, yeah, Python is definitely something that uh, my audience will be very, very Yeah, it's relevant with. to your, and yeah. your audience will be way ahead of me as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to open up a random question generator. We'll pull up a few questions here. All right. Wow. What's one place you've traveled to that you never want to go back to? Oh, wow. That's hard. <laughs> I'm really struggling to think of something. Go, get, go on to another one unless okay. I'm breaking, breaking your rules and I'll see if yeah. something comes to mind. Yeah, no worries. What have you created that you're most proud of? I think it, it's, again, boring, but it is sentientism. And I didn't create it, but I've recast it, and I'm quite proud of the way I've done that, so, and the communities around it. So. What's on your bucket list this year? I don't have one. <laughs> what is the story behind one of your scars? I broke my collarbone skiing when I was, I think, 13 or 14. Ooh. Yeah, and I went off a jump and um, didn't land well. <laughs> We'll do uh, one more from the random question generator here. What are you a natural at? Talking too much, as you've probably found. <laughs> oh, uh, one, one more, one more random question. What song do you currently have on repeat? Oh, man. I am currently listening to, it's not a particular song, but uh, Lyricist Lounge 2, which is like a quite old school hip hop compilation. Ah, <laughs> Randomly. Nice. I'll have to look that one up. Thank you. So how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Cool. So um, easiest places, I mean, Twitter is a good place to start. So I'm at Jamie Woodhouse, but I also run at Sentientism. All of the Sentientism stuff, the portal for that is sentientism.info, I-N-F-O. So people can go there and there you'll find, you know, some other podcasts, some articles I've written, some YouTube stuff. But two of my favorite pages there, there's a wall where people can go and uh, add themselves and add a personal message about why they're a sentientist. Uh, we have some interesting celebs and philosophers up there as well, but you know, it's mostly random people like me from around the world. Uh, we also have a suspected celebs page where I've gone and found, you know, really well-known people from history and current culture who seem to think in a sentientist way, largely because they're, you know, have their naturalistic worldview and are normally vegan or serious about their animal ethics. So there's some amazing, maybe quite surprising names up there. Uh, of people who probably haven't heard of sentientism but seem to think this way. 
Um, and the final thing is um, we're building a range of different uh, community groups globally around sentientism as well. So you'll find those links on the sentientism.info page. But the, the biggest is on Facebook. So there's um, about 1,100 people there now from, I think, 90 different countries. So it's an amazing mix of academics and activists and writers and policy people. Again, mostly just interested lay people like me. And all of these groups are completely open to anyone who wants to get their private. If anyone who's interested in the idea can come along. So they're not just for people who think of themselves as sentientists. Uh, but if you search on Facebook or Discord or Telegram or LinkedIn or Reddit, there's um, there's pages and accounts on all of those different places. And yeah, I would love to continue the conversation with people. Definitely. Keen to hear feedback and uh, keen to talk. Yeah, definitely. I'll make sure I add those to the show notes and um, have those links out there for people. Jamie, thank you so much for taking time out of schedule to come on to the show today. I really appreciate having you here. It's been a real pleasure to meet you, Harpreet.